What's up, everybody, and welcome to Episode 8 of Good Hacks. Well, it's the end of the NHL season, the end of the NBA season, two really compelling final series wrapped up earlier this week, which means, Max, it's finally time for football season. Whoa! <laughs> Tim! I'm going to have to get on a high horse right now, Tim. Okay, need to step up? Because it is not time for football season. <laughs> I got to put the sport on my back. It is baseball season through and through. And this is what really grinds my gears, Tim, because at this point of the year, when when basketball and when hockey officially end, everybody's like, oh, it's football season now. We got OTAs coming up. Everybody's got to get ready for the season. The preseason's right around the corner. And yet we haven't even gotten to the halfway point of the MLB season yet. So... For example, Adam Schefter, a viable source, an amazing in- information outlet for any fan. Fount of knowledge. He's a, he has a master's degree from Medill. <laughs> at 11, so at 11.02 p.m. after the Raptors win the title on Thursday night, Schefter tweets, next up, colon, the football emoji. And I'm sitting at home and I see this and I just... Oh, it really got to me, Tim. So I looked at the comments. The steam is coming out of his ears right yeah, now. Uh, you, you did not want to be around me in this moment. And so I look at the comments and I'm thinking, oh, everybody's just going to be like, yeah, football. And yet, baseball, stand up. Everybody was defending this side of the argument. People saying, we're still playing baseball, buddy. Baseball's still going on. We got the whole season left to go. So, Tim... We got a lot to talk about today, but I just, I, I really had to get that off of my chest. Well, you've got support from high places. Alex Cora said this the other day after the Bruins lost in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. The next day, Alex Cora said, you know, hey, you know, we congratulate our friends from the city on a great season, whatever, came up just short. But it's our turn now. Yeah. We're the last team in this city playing. We've got title expectations. We're the reigning champs. So, you know, obviously the Bruins trying for their first title since 2011, came up short in Game 7. The Red Sox are like, look, it's, it's up to us now. If you're a sports fan in this city, dare we say in the country, that's your option now. That's what's left. Unless you're a you know a, a, a dork like me and you're excited for the professional lacrosse season to keep going in this summer. It's <laughs> it's it's professional baseball I mean, and some softball. That's about it, right? Yeah, women's women's soccer World Cup. That's is true. Going on right now. We got to give that some credit. But I mean, we are a a diamond sport podcast and operation here at Good Hacks. So that's obviously what we're going to talk about. But it, all, all jokes aside, it really is frustrating that a lot of very popular sports publications, I'm not going to name names, they won't put baseball or softball or anything like that in their A block. They, they just won't talk about it. It's not their focus. And that that just is simply put that although baseball is, you know, air quotes, America's pastime, it's just not what people want to hear about. And if, if Tom Brady lifted a finger in his <laughs> in his uh off-season workout or Odell Beckham did something then that's that's more important and that's just the way it is. Yeah, as soon as Anthony Davis breathes over the next couple of weeks that's oh, what that we're going to hear about. Yeah, so, well free agency is going to be fun. I suppose. But what's more fun is the actual games that are still happening here in yes, Major League Baseball. And absolutely. we've patted ourselves on the back for a couple of things that we have gotten right. We've not gotten everything right, that's for sure, but you know, I think when we get something right here at Good Hacks, we deserve to give ourselves a round of applause. Yeah. So if you've been with us all year, you've heard about Austin Riley. Absolutely. Uh, and he has done nothing short of tear it up since he's been called up to the major leagues. If you've been with us, you heard about Lucas Giolito, and he was the reigning AL Pitcher of the Month for the White Sox. So you've heard about these folks. You've heard about Fran Mil Reyes, who might be a home run derby candidate coming up. We'll see. Mike Soroka. Mike Soroka, another great example, one of the best ERAs in the bigs right now. And if you've been with us, you've also heard about Jordan Alvarez, who is going to lead off this show uh, headlining my next edition of the call-up quarter, Max. This is a guy who is leading the Pacific Coast League in home runs with 24 thereabouts, if memory serves, in a league that is just absolutely rife with home runs. There's close to 10 guys that have 20-plus. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, home runs are up across the minor leagues this year. We talked about it a little bit in our home run podcast, but you know they're using Major League Baseballs and AAA, so that's had a little bit of an effect. But regardless, home runs are way up, especially in the PCL and especially in the Astros organization with Jordan Alvarez and with Altuve, Springer, and Correa all hurt. 
and a couple of other factors, the Astros decided, look, we can't leave this guy down there anymore. All this guy does is hit. And like I said before, he doesn't just hit home runs. He's not, you know, you know, your prototypical power hitter is going to get you 40 home runs and hit 200. We've talked about Mark Reynolds in the past, Adam Dunn, guys yeah. like that. He doesn't do that. This right. guy was hitting 400 at the start of this season, hits to all fields, hits for incredible power, hits doubles, things like that. So this is an absolute pure hitter, and now he's up in the major leagues and he's done something. He's now the 23rd player ever to hit a home run in his first two career major league games. Homer in his debut in his second ever at-bat off of Dylan Bundy against the Orioles. And then the very next game, he was out the next day, but his next game hit a home run again as part of a four-home run day for the Astros as a whole against the Brewers. So this is a legitimate hitting prospect. He's yeah. uh, just outside of the top 25 overall prospects, I think, in the most recent update. But regardless, this is a... A good start to his professional career. He's only got two hits in his first three games. Both of those are home runs, but he's drawn five walks, struck out four times, so that's pretty even. You like to see that. And his last game, he didn't have a hit, but he walked three times. So, I mean, I don't know what more you want. And this home run against uh, the Brewers was a changeup, I think, that was feet below the zone. And he reached down and he pulled it out to right field. He's a left-handed hitter, but he pulled it down you know, into this just over the wall in right field. This is a complete hitter, and I'm glad that he finally has gotten the call-up. He's been really, really good this year. He has, and if you look up Jordan Alvarez and look up some film on him, he has an absolutely immaculate swing from the left side. He's 21 years old, so he's younger than us. <laughs> he's from true. Cuba. It's true. And so let's look at those two home runs. His first home run, prototypical, beautiful-looking swing, perfect for the highlight reel. His next home run, like you said, he gets his three wood out of his bag and just flicks it off the ground, a wall scraper to right, just over, oh, Yelich didn't get there in time, but he could have potentially robbed it. That's how close it was. It was close to the wall. But that's the thing. I mean, it's early, like we talked about with Austin Riley when when he came up or any other prospect that we've talked about. It's too small of a sample size. But... To have those two sides of the spectrum, to see that he's able to have that kind of pop on on a pitch right down the middle versus a pitch way below the zone that he probably got fooled on because he was out in front. If he can start to hit for average and show that this team has so much depth, it's dangerous. I mean, like you said, this is a team that's been dealing with injury. And to have Alvarez as as an asset for them to come up and fill a void for the time being, not only is that going to help the team, but it's also going to help him. Because, like I said, he's 21. Maybe he wasn't supposed to be called up this year. But like we saw with Riley, he came up in a position that wasn't, wasn't effectively his. He came up because of an injury. Alvarez coming up because of injuries or, or whatever the case may be, and he's getting this experience now in in June. He's playing in the middle of the season. So if he can prove himself, and he has quite a bit of time, assuming they don't send him down, which I don't think they should after three games playing that the way he is, he, he can potentially be a contributor down the stretch. And we know this team is going to contend. There's no question about no, that. It's, ridic- it's ridiculous. They put up 10 runs without those three guys right. in the lineup. So, you know, what happens if Bregman goes down or Altuve doesn't get right by the end of the year? You have someone now off the bench or in your starting lineup who is young. He is going to rejuvenate this team. And the potential is is sky high. You know, maybe he's not going to win Rookie of the Year because he's starting a little late, right. but he's going to do exactly what this team needs, I think. Let's flip it the other way as well on the call-up corner because we know that how much I like my pitchers. Uh, we'll go the other way. Somebody that I haven't heard too much about this year because, frankly, Max, we talked about Alvarez being amazing in AAA this year. This guy hasn't been. But, honestly, on the flip side, we talked about all the home runs hit in the PCL this year and even in the International League, which has always been – known as more of the pitching league, somehow or another runs are down in that league. And, you know, with the elevation or whatever out in the western part of the country, always the, the runs are higher in the PCL. That's how it's been for, you know, a dozen years or so. But with that said, pitching numbers are not very good across the board in the Pacific Coastal League and even for some guys in the IL. But so the the Rockies called up a guy named Peter Lamberts, who is their number four prospect. And his numbers in the minors aren't very good. His ERA is plus five, 
but they bring him in and his first two his first ever major league starts are really good. He starts his first two career games against the Cubs. That's a legitimate team this yeah. year. People didn't necessarily think so, but that's a top of the division team as as they would like to be. And he was really good. His first ever game, seven innings, just one run, four hits, one walk, nine strikeouts against the Cubs, which wow. is a Colorado Rockies record, you told me, for strikeouts yeah. by a pitcher making his debut. So that doesn't get it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. A high quality, not just a quality start, a high quality start in your first game at Wrigley Field, and then your next game five days later comes back to earth a little bit, not as efficient, five total innings, only one run allowed as a solo home run to Jason Hayward, two walks, three strikeouts, so still a fine start. So his first two starts, seven total hits, two total earned runs, 12 strikeouts over 12 innings. That's a good start to the Major League career for Peter Lambert. Yeah, you, you really can't ask for much more. I mean, 12 innings and only seven seven hits. Sure. So a .83 whip in his career so far. That'll do it. Yeah. Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, Wrigley, that is insane conditions to make your debut in and then to come back and face the same team so they've already seen him point. less than a week later and it's at course field and we know the ball just rockets out of there because of the altitude so for him to only give up one run in each game only one home run total and that was at course field i mean you you really can't ask for much more i i don't know much about him but if he's the fourth prospect for the rockies clearly he's touted clearly he he has potential and we'll see where it goes um another another guy that that i want to you know contribute to the call up corner is jordan yamamoto from the marlins the 17th ranked prospect for the marlins he made his debut getting called up because jose urania went down on the dl and in a game against the cardinals he went 7 innings had three hits, five strikeouts, no runs. So this was on a night that Justin Verlander set his career high for strikeouts in a game against the Brewers with 15, and yet Yamamoto was the guy who led off the show on MLB Tonight. And Greg Amsinger and the guys were asking him, you know, how does this feel to be making your debut and being the focus of our show when a future Hall of Famer had a career night elsewhere? And he was just awestruck. I thought it, we really appreciate those kind of moments yeah. where a prospect and a young guy comes up, and and you know all the planets align, and they're able to just perform at the absolute peak of their potential. And it was just amazing to see his curveball was electric. He was he, he was of course in the in the Yelich trade. He was the pitcher along with Isan Diaz, Monte Harrison, and Lewis Brinson. Sure. And so he was kind of the fourth member of that trade. Lewis right. Brinson was the headliner, one of Milwaukee's top prospects and somebody that I was super high on. And I tried to talk you off the ledge, really using him as the, the wedge in that trade talking about, look who you got with Lewis Brinson. But obviously, as you know, better than me, not a really good start to the year in the majors for him. But Monte yeah. Harrison's had a very good start to the year in the minors. Well, Tim, I don't want to hijack the podcast, but I could talk for hours about why, even as a diehard Yelich fan, someone who loves Yelich's game, thinks that the Marlins still might have won this trade. Okay. Because in the grand scheme of things, we did not need Yelich right now. We isn't the Marlins. Right. I'm, I'm taking off my, my unbiased hat That's okay. Here. So the Marlins are clearly in a rebuild. They don't need an MVP performance right now. We saw that with Stan. Sure. They had an MVP and they still didn't make the playoffs. They still weren't you know, good enough to contend. That's true. So as much as we loved him down in South Florida, you know, get rid of of such amazing talent to try to get a haul back that's going to be ready in five years, in, in four, in six, whatever it ends up being. So all the scouts, all the veterans will always say, build up the middle, right? That's that's the, the, the prototype of, of making a good roster. Sure. And so you look at this trade. Yamamoto has the potential to be a, a, a I don't know, a two in a in a starting rotation, yeah, depending on other circumstances. Monte Harrison and Isan Diaz and Lewis Brinson all play up the middle. Those guys are are five tool guys. They hit well. They run well. They have plus arms. I don't know their scouting off the top of my head, no. but they've all performed at the minor league level. 
as we saw with Brinson, maybe he's not completely ready to to contribute at the major league level just yet. But hey, they're not going to make the playoffs for a couple years. But once these guys start to get going, you know, probably Yamamoto goes back down. Or he stays up and makes a start every once in a while. I think that's likely. But as they start to get more experience, they're going to be ready in a couple years once all of those prospects are ready, ideally. You know, assuming nothing goes wrong. Sure. So as Yelich will continue to play well and, and win batting titles and win MVPs and players of the month and all of that, it would have been a waste for his career to be in Miami at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. And you're right. We saw that with Stanton as well. And we've seen it with Mike Trout. This is the argument. Mike Trout can yeah. win MVPs or be top three for MVPs, but the rest of the Angels aren't good enough. They don't have the pitching full stop, and they don't have the supporting cast around a guy as transcendent as Mike Trout to get the team into the playoffs and to even be relevant to be competent for a playoff spot. I was That was always the case with Stanton, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, what, what kind of haul do you think the Angels would have got back if they <laughs> if they happened to have traded Trout? That's tough because, I mean, for Yelich, you trade him away. You don't know that he's going to be the MVP. Right. You can, you know, you can have seen him a lot and be a fan of his and think he's a really good player and you market that he has that potential, but you're trading away a guy that has been an MVP, has yeah. been a perennial a whole candidate. Yeah, it's a whole different conversation. I think the Brewers knew what they were getting. There's no question about oh, no that. No doubt. It's a really good return. So, but, you know. Like, like what they got back from the Stanton trade, like what they got back from the Ozuna trade. These guys are all starting to work their way up. You know, Zach Gallen. Sandy Alcantara has already been on the roster for us. Yep. They, they're both from the Cardinals system and from the Yankees. Caleb Smith, they got so much money back from that deal. So we'll see. I mean, it, Jeter and, and the whole operation down in Miami is doing everything that they can to work. And there's a means to an end. They're not doing what they used to do and just just trade for the sake of trading and, and moving people now there there is a plan. They executed at the draft. We talked about that on the triple play. Oh, yeah. I thought that they won the draft. I couldn't agree more. And in five years, you look at what their lineup could look like. And again, it's impossible to know if every prospect is going to pan out exactly like the scouting report says. But if they're anything close to that for every single member of, of this you know, jigsaw puzzle that, that we're trying to compile here... They're going to be really good, and that's that's you know coming up at the end of of the the Phillies and and Harper's going to be on the decline, and the Braves are still going to be good because all of those guys are young. The Mets, who knows? Yeah. So that division in five years is is probably going to be winnable. Who knows? Uh, we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, here, it's a ways but, out, but you never know, right? Yeah. Well, that's the fun thing. We'll talk about this a little bit more next month when we get closer to the trade deadline. But we know that I'm the the prospect guy or whatever. The, and we like to play armchair GM. And you see this a little bit more, I guess, with the NBA and the NHL. How we let off the show. We're going to trade a guy for prospects and draft picks. You don't see the draft picks too, too much. No. At least the impactful ones, like a first or second round pick in MLB trades necessarily. So you're really banking on prospects international slot money, bonus pool stuff. So you're banking on that when you're trying to make these types of deals. So I, I love it. I, I like trade deadline season for that reason, mostly because I get to see how these folks move around and you see who's, you know, who other teams are in the market for, who they have their eye on, guys that maybe aren't a fit some for some reason or another in a minor league system get another chance somewhere else. So again, we'll talk about more we'll talk more a little bit a little bit more about this in a month or so. But I think Look, I, I love the optimism, but there's every chance that, like you said, the the hole that is Christian Yelich could end up being not worth as much as the sum of the parts as of the trade that got him to the Brewers. With everybody that they got back, I saw Monte Harrison just briefly when he was in the Brewers organization. He played for the Carolina Mudcats, which are a little ways away from my hometown in Raleigh. They play in Zebulon. Uh, that's a plus, and so they're the Brewers affiliate. They actually, used to be a Marlins affiliate. Uh, Miguel Cabrera used to play there at mm, some point. Interesting. Um, but now they're the Brewers affiliate. Have been for you know a couple of years. So Monte Harrison has been there, was there, and was really good for them. So I've gotten to see him a little bit. So I believe in him. Yeah. I believed in Lewis Brinson, like I said. Obviously, not a great start to his major league career. And then you know, we talked about the draft a little bit, and I mentioned it on the triple play. But I'll go ahead and say like that. The outfield for the Marlins, 
how it projects and let's you know use your ballpark and say five years how that outfield projects could be incredible even if Brinson doesn't pan out the the other the compensatory pick in that draft was Cameron Meisner and I can only talk really well about guys that I've seen but I saw Cameron Meisner earlier this year for Missouri when they played against Northwestern and uh, you know, he had all the, the scouting reports coming in, but I got to see, and he didn't even have his greatest series ever. He didn't, right. you know, hit amazingly or whatever, but you could tell he yeah. can do everything. He's got power as a center fielder, but he's, you know, more of the all fields hitter, great contact hitter, great defense, great speed, great arm. This is a really good, maybe corner outfield prospect, maybe is what he's better suited for. But if you have him in left field, maybe Monte Harrison in left or center, and then J.J. Blade rounding out in right. And this is actually a guy, and I've never not watched Christian Yelich nearly as much as you have, but Blade was a guy that, and again, patting myself on the back here slightly, I made this comparison, and then I heard other people make it. So often, you know, if you get that idea, like, sublimated, you start to think that you came up with the idea. Right. <laughs> I truly think, I'm not saying I'm the first to think about this, okay. but I didn't hear this from anybody necessarily like I've heard from other player comps. I think J.J. Bladé is a lot like Christian Yelich. Hmm. He can do everything that Yelich can do. He's got yeah. the home runs. He's got the contact. He's a fine defender with a great arm. If you put him in right field, there's no reason he can't be somewhat approaching what Christian Yelich is. Well, I guess that would make sense if if that's who they went with at four. Sure, you need a replacement. there were so many people still on the board at that point, obviously. Right. So if they went with a corner outfielder with a lot of the same skills, that makes sense. Um, one, one other thing that I wanted to talk about this week, and I was going to make Jordan Yamamoto the buen hombre of the week, all of our favorite segments. Sure. But... It's really hard not to go with Shohei Otani. And we're going to talk about this game for a couple more reasons because a lot was going on down at the Trop. But Shohei Otani became the first Japanese-born player in MLB history to hit for the cycle. Now that in itself is incredibly impressive. And we know that Otani is, is fascinating because he pitches and he got Tommy John and now he's just hitting this season. But... He did all of it in seven innings. With two outs in the seventh, he had a single to, to officially clinch the cycle. I feel like usually you're 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 a little later than that, just trying to get that last hit. Sure. And he got the hardest parts out of the way early. Uh, I believe it went double, excuse me, home run, double, triple, then single. That's right. So opposite field home run, then a double in the gap, then a triple down the right field line. And ending up with a single, just a, a looper over to center. He knew exactly what he needed at that point in a 5-3 to three game. And he got it done. So first Angel since 2013. Guy named Mike Trout also hit for the cycle. So no surprise yeah, there. Yeah, no surprise there. I saw somebody say that uh, it was kind of a surprise that Ichiro never hit for the cycle. Because you know that how amazing of a hitter yeah. he was. I just looked it up. He only had, and I have you know only in very much air quotes, <laughs> only 96 triples in his career. So if you think about it that way, he didn't have too many chances necessarily, yeah. and only 117 home runs. So obviously everybody knows he's not a home run hitter. That was never his game. Right. Had that ability, you know, he had, you know, 10 home runs in a season three times, and you know the last of those came in 2009. So not none recently, but you know he has that extra base potential apart from being one of the greatest contact hitters that I've ever right. seen. So I did, I did kind of that is really have to scratch my head a little bit about that. I know. Because when I was around the Marlins last summer, and Ichiro used to play for the Marlins, sure. a lot of people that saw him and and knew him well, and this isn't just around the Marlins. This is I've heard this for years that he could hit a home run if he wanted to. Interesting. Like he would have won every home run derby that he participated in if he were to have participated in them, because he was such a good hitter that he could just flip a switch and go into home run mode. So I think what may have happened is he was probably so respectful to you know the team and wanting to help the team win that if he's leading off, he was just trying to get on base and just slap a hit. So maybe he never got to the situation where he would mentally flip the switch and say, all right, I'm going to try to go deep here. I don't know. I've, I've never been inside Ichiro's head. I would love to, to ask him, but I feel like also with a cycle, you have to get lucky. Sure. Like, Otani's triple was down the right field line, and That's it just so happened that it, it didn't carry him far off into the corner. 
it it stayed where it was, and the right fielder took a while to get over. And Otani's not the fastest guy it's, in the it's, league. It's Avisil Garcia. He's going to take <laughs> yeah. a while to get there. But who knows? Maybe it's on turf. It, maybe it skipped off faster, and he got thrown out at third. Sure. And then we're not talking about this. No, you're not. So the Triples are hard. Like, yeah, that that's crazy to me. He ended up with just the single. The single's the easiest part. So... I wonder if Ichiro was ever... I, I'm sure he was one hit away. He, he had to have I, been. I feel confident in that, yes. Yeah. But still, first Japanese-born player ever to do it. There have been quite a few that have played in the majors sure. over, over over the course of history. And the fact that he's also a pitcher. I doubt we will ever see a guy like, you know, DeGrom or Sundergaard or Granke or Kershaw, the guys that, that pitched and can also hit let alone will they ever get four at-bats in a game and go four for four with four different hits. That's That's, true. that's crazy. Yeah. The so, two home run games for some of those pitchers are surprising enough. And that's obviously impressive regardless yeah. of who you are, two home run game. But, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, obviously he's not really pitching this year because of the Tommy John, but he is a pitcher. Yeah, that is <laughs> for all intents and purposes, he is a pitcher. So, I mean, we, we were also talking about this, Tim and I, before the podcast, trying to think of, if we were a major leaguer right now, what would we want to accomplish in terms of all of the crazy feats that are so uncommon in this game? And we've we've talked about them on, on several podcasts because this year has had quite a few. Sure. So I think I know where Tim's going to go. But for me, honestly, I think the cycle might might be the, the choice for me because I'm not a speed guy. So to hit a triple is exciting <laughs> in itself. That's fair. You're still getting the homer, so you're still showing you can you can drive the ball. And then the finesse of being able to, like I said, there's a lot of luck involved, but once you get those three, you know what you need. So let's say you know you need a double, you're shooting for the gap and you pull it off. Mm-hmm. Or you know you need a single, you can you can do whatever you need to do to get that single. So to be such a solid all-around hitter and to, to touch every base, so to speak, it's it's incredibly impressive. I've I was never close to that in my, you know, modest career (laughs) but that's the thing when you when anyone at my level when you would lead off a game in your first at bat and get a hit you're like oh cycle watch (laughs) (laughs) so i one time in little league i had i had a couple triples in a game and i was like wow if only i i could have stretched that one for an inside the parker i'm on cycle watch here (laughs) because no one at at this level is going to hit four home runs and that that would be the other as a position player the other moments you would try to shoot for and that's even more uncommon than the cycle we've seen a lot of cycles in history tim but i think the cycle in terms of a a broad range of work is more impressive to me what about you so well before i answer let me lead you one way i'm curious how you feel about this so let's say that Shoei otani came up with needing a single for the cycle like he did and then he hit the ball into the gap again do you stop at first oh my gosh this is it's an impossible question because, like all the unwritten rules in baseball, it would have been disrespectful for him to have stopped and like let the ball just continue to roll and he just stays at first and celebrates the cycle. That's like that's like bunting in the ninth inning to break up a no-hitter, in my opinion. Maybe he, he fakes a hamstring injury, so he hobbles into first and stays there. But that's another thing. I wonder if that's ever happened. I wonder if someone needs a single... And just absolutely run. <laughs> well, well, that's that's out of his control. He stays at first, says, "I'm okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with a single here, folks." No, it hits a ball down the line into the corner with a shift all the way across on the other side of the outfield and just camps out at first. I wonder if that's ever happened, or I don't know. or someone needs a triple and hits just a regular single to right and just puts goes their head it. down and just goes for it and gets in a rundown and tries to pull it off. So if that was me. It's a game time decision, Tim. I don't know. I feel like it depends on the player that you are too. If you're a journeyman who who has never gotten four hits in a game and you're on cycle watch, I feel like you're that kind of personality or that kind of player type is is more likely to 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 do what it takes to get that moment because that's such a cool moment for their career. But if you're Mike Trout, you're probably going to get to that point again, or or a, a kind of hitter like Yelich who hit two in one year. So. I don't know. It's 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 tough either way because you're you're in you know you're the top story either way. Either you were, 
you know, you ambitious. You got a forehead and, day either way. Right. But either you, you know, toe the line of I'm going to stay at first and it was a little disrespectful or you go for more and, and your utmost respect for the game and for the other team, like you just, you went for what the hit actually should have been. That's a, that's a really great question though. Well, I put you, I give you the impossible, the quandary. I, I hamstrung you there because it is impossible. Put me on the spot. Well, I mean, so look, I think, like you said, I think you know where I'm going with this. I was a very, very bad two-way player when I played, <laughs> um, mostly because I would say I used to switch hit because I could never figure out which side I actually could hit from. Okay. So I was a two-way player because we could never really figure out which was my better place to play me, which is why I didn't play very long. Yeah. But I was a, a pitcher mostly, so definitely for me, the no-hitter would be the way right. to go. Um, however, you know, we talked a little bit about the true win where Noah Syndergaard threw a complete game shutout and also hit the solo home run to give his team the only run. Yeah. Uh, so that's the dream. If you're that type of player, like you said, for me, my personality, a no hitter is fine with me. That is enough. If we win five, nothing and I throw a no hitter to, you know, to cap it all off. That's a great day for me. But if you like to be that person, if you like to be able to do everything, which I guess is, you know, part of my personality, being able to do a couple of different things well, you can argue if I do them well, but being able to have that ability. So if you have the ability to hit, so like Shohei Otani next year does that type of thing. Maybe oh my he gosh. Does, maybe he doesn't if he's going to be the starting pitcher in the American League. But you know what I mean. Right. So That's a good point. that probably is probably a dumb example. But regardless, if a pitcher was to do that, not hit for the cycle, I think that's asking too much. Yeah. But if you, I think the, the quote-unquote true win, like what Syndergaard did a couple of weeks yeah. ago, that's about the pinnacle as a starting pitcher because you have, and again, we, we talked about how I didn't really agree with the, uh, the description of the true win, the evaluation of yeah. it. But that is the pinnacle. You've done everything. You are the reason your team won that game. Well, off the top of my head, if you're an NL pitcher and you're going the distance for a no-hitter or a perfect game or whatever the case may be, you are getting four at-bats. Sure. Assuming your team isn't getting no-hit as well. Sure. And you're going to be hitting in the eighth inning or in the top of the ninth or whatever the situation is. And I think that you're more likely to see a pitcher just absolutely tuned out, just with the bat on their shoulder, not planning on swinging and trying to strike out because, you know, worst case scenario, they walk and then they have to run the bases sure. and, and take their mind off of pitching. Maybe, potentially they get hurt, yeah, maybe they get hit, sure, something like that. So to have a pitcher who, you know, we're assuming there's someone like Otani out there who's so dual-faceted, who can, even late in the game, try to hit, it also helps if you're in a close game. Sure. Because if you come up and you're throwing a no-hitter and it's 0-0 in the eighth, and there's a guy on third and two outs, that's a really tough spot for that pitcher because you're trying to stay focused and think of who you're facing in the next inning. But you also got to try to help your team, and all you got to do is get that guy home. But you don't want to swing and 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 change your, your mindset. So I don't know if we'll ever see that, Tim. I think that that's – and we talk about all the things that, that – are so rare in this game. I don't think we will ever see a no hitter and like a like a cycle or and a four hit game or something like that by the same by person. one person. I don't. I would. I would guess probably not. Yeah. I think it's possible, and I've teased this you know a week or two. But eventually, we will have a conversation about the two way player sure. and how this may or may not be with Shohei Otani really being the figurehead for now. And maybe this is the way this game is going. We'll see. There's one more prime example that I could talk about who is doing very well for himself in AAA Brendan right now, McKay. named Brendan McKay, former top pick. Yes, sir. So this is the way, and we see this in softball frequently. I was going to mention it. We are the Diamonds. We are a Diamond Sport podcast. Oh, hey, in softball, it's a whole other Absolutely. They, they play, quote-unquote, only seven innings, so you don't have to throw, quote-unquote, okay. as much. But, yeah, you're, the difference here is, is that Instead of being the ninth hitter like Zach Granke would be, and he's a good hitter for a pitcher, Rachel Garcia is the middle-of-the-order hitter. She's yeah. a cleanup hitter for UCLA and the two-time National Player of the Year. So the National Freshman this year is a pitcher and hitter, Danielle Williams over at Northwestern. These are types of players that can do a whole lot, and Rachel Garcia is just amazing at both. Sure. So, again, more on that later because we wanted to talk more about this specific game between the Angels and the Rays a we little did. bit because, honestly, that Otani cycle might be the most unique thing that occurs because it has only happened so many times, 40 times or whatever it is in the history of Major League Baseball, maybe 50. 
But it wasn't the most unusual thing. It wasn't the most noteworthy thing, perhaps, that came no. out of that game. There was a kind of like that Super Bowl from from many oh, years God, ago with, the, so with right. the Ravens and the 49ers, yep. I believe is what it was. That is what it was. There was a 36-minute power delay. And not only did all of the lights turn off, but the broadcast couldn't continue because everything went out. And I don't I still to this day don't know what the source was. I don't know if you do, Tim. Like oh, why, why it happened. happened. I actually don't know. Yeah, but you know, go on Twitter if you're listening and and look up a video, you know, whether it's a Rays writer, an Angels writer, or, or fans there. It was a fascinating situation. It was like there was going to be a concert yeah. and it hadn't started yet because everybody had their phones and you could see the lights all around the stadium. Granted, there were only 15,000 people at the drop and it's maybe that was a little bit of a juiced uh, attendance rate. But I digress. Ne- never. 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 <laughs> Absolutely not. No, it never happened. But so many different things happened in this game, Tim. I, we can talk about the starting pitchers and the fact that in the middle of their start, in the middle of the start, yeah. for thirty-six minutes, they had to sit and wait for electricians to, to come in from downtown St. Pete and, <laughs> and figure it out. Like I'd love to know more about about what happened there. The other thing that I'm thinking of right now is because I said everyone was on their phones. What if this happened like twenty years ago? I don't know off the top of my head when the trop opened, but let's say there was a dome. Many, many years before the iPhone came out, what would people have done? It's not like you bring around a flashlight. (laughs) Sure, it wasn't pitch black in there because there were still a couple lights working, but the huge stadium lights were not. Right. All intents and purposes, it was dark in there. Absolutely correct, yeah. So it's just something else to think about. That It was probably a wild experience for fans. It was weird because I wasn't watching that game at that time, but I was, you know, as I do, I was listening to the AAA game, the Rays AAA game, the Durham Bulls, and my friend Patrick Kinas, the broadcaster there, was talking about it. He's just kind of happened in, you know, the third inning or whatever of the Rays game, and, you know, it was about about concurrent. It was the third or fourth inning of the Bulls game, and he's like, well, you know, there was a, a power outage, and the broadcast stopped. So, you know, you're on TV or whatever, and just all of a sudden you can't go anymore. So it's not like a rain delay where you can at least – see it coming right and right. Here, here comes the tarp and yeah we're gonna you know be at we're gonna have a delay and we'll talk to you whenever we can if you're a broadcaster and i can say this from experience that's what you have to do you have to give people this warning you can't give them a warning right. all in of that a sudden situation. Just absolutely it's just gone. done yeah. so you're thinking if you're at home you know watching on a tv if you're that kind of person there aren't too many people that you know do that anymore necessarily but they're like, oh you go up and you smack it a couple of times, change the antennas around. Well, what's going on? It's <laughs> something wrong on my end. But no, in fact, there is a power outage at this stadium. And we're just watching some videos right now. You're just moving along. Everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, literally like a, sna- you know, a snap, a couple of things, just a couple of different rows shut off. And then everything goes off. It's just like the beginning of a disaster. Yeah, you got to look up this video. This is crazy. The The lights kind of changed colors. Looks like a spaceship. And flickered. There. It does look like a spaceship inside the trop. I've never been to the trop yet. Neither I've seen I. it from outside. And it's not glamorous. No. I don't think it's that bad of a stadium inside. It doesn't get a lot of positive rep because nobody's there. True. And the but, balls hit the catwalk, which is annoying. Right, which is very annoying. Um, so there's there's also a shot from inside the press box that the press box is lit up. Interesting. But then the field is absolutely pitch black That's except cool. for fans in, in the out, outfield bleachers with their phones on. It's really cool. I Like I said, it happened in the Super Bowl. I'm sure it's happened a lot in, in college and in – Mid-major, especially with, you know, not Power 5 conference kind of stadiums. And then in high school, it helped me more. Sure. But 36 minutes, and we talked about this with Fires' no-hitter, how he had the kind of outage with, with the that's lights true. in, it wasn't in like, Oakland. That's true. Derek Dietrich to the rescue. But in Oakland, it it's an open stadium and and it was a night game but that was at the beginning right. i believe it was it was the he had started. he had warmed up for the game and he was about to take them out and then they delayed it for i want to say almost an hour i think it was over an hour yes yeah. so in that case you can still see what's going on cuz it was on the, the west outage, coast right. and and the sun was still That's true. out effectively no it was but in this case like what did what did the starters do? What did Tyler Skaggs do? Did he go down and keep throwing? Because we can look up how many pitches both of these starters threw in this game. 
Tyler Skaggs threw 95 total pitches. Through five innings. Through five innings. And Yarborough threw 90. So Through six. Through six. So they both ended up pitching, you know, a, a modern era start. Sure. It's not like they got taken out because of the delay. I was surprised by that because yeah. I was following the, the start. Like I said, I wasn't watching. I watched later. Uh, and I was surprised that both starters came out. So I think, honestly, I don't think there's a magic number, but I'm curious what you think, somebody who's been in and involved with the game more than me, if there is a time when you would actually think about when is too long. Because obviously you can have some long half innings if your team is hitting well, which the Rays are not right now. If you're if you're sitting in, on you know in the dugout, Ryan Yarbrough could be sitting there for close to 20 minutes, yeah. and that is uncommon, but within the realm of possibility. So he was sitting around for close to 40 minutes, and honestly, I thought that was close to that threshold. I was surprised that both of those starters came back out. This was in the middle of the game, like you said. Yeah, maybe the argument to keep them in is that these guys, this is their job to be ready to pitch on their start day every five days. With the Rays, it's different, but you know what I mean. So these are cream of the crop, best athletes, grown-ass men who are ready to pitch on this fifth day. And they get to their start. And they're going to be physically and mentally in the place to last as long as they possibly can. The other argument is you could have treated this as just a long inning. Let's say, you know, ignore the the fact that the power went out and just try to envision the fact that for Skaggs, let's say, Trout and Pujols and Simmons, they just went off for an offensive inning and scored 10 runs. Would they have taken Skaggs out in that situation? Maybe not. No. Maybe you want him to go long enough to get the win. So he ended up going five innings and he got the win. But I don't know. It's We talk about trying to figure out if you're going to take out a pitcher in a no-hitter when, when pitch count-wise. This is another really hard conversation for, for a manager because you don't want to mess with the guy's health. You don't want him to get hurt after being cold, like warms up before the game, starts the game, gets cold because of the delay, and then comes back out and aggravates something yeah. because they're not as warm anymore, right. obviously. Yeah, literally, literally and figuratively not warm. Or do you want to expend your bullpen and maybe hurt someone down the road because you got to use more guys on a, on a Thursday, and then after using more people on Friday, you have a no days off for the next seven days or whatever the case may be, and you're overusing people. So I think that the only way to really solve that issue, and I'm, I'm sure that this was the case, is just a constant dialogue between every party, between pitching coach, trainers, manager, starters, relievers. I'm sure people were getting hot in the bullpen if, if the catchers could even see the ball. <laughs> yeah. And they worked it out. But something that we, we also want to touch upon here is that the Rays didn't use an opener in this game. And... The opener conversation in itself could be a whole podcast, so we don't want to talk about this for too long. But it could be a, certainly a topic of conversation. Other yeah, teams so, are using it. It's a thing. I think it's officially, and last year was really the the nascence of it, I guess. But it is officially a thing across major and minor league baseball. Well, when you think of Rays, you think of the opener. You do. They're they're analytically ahead of the rest of the game. So they like to think. But now other teams are starting to use it. And so this question that that Tim and I were trying to figure out earlier is the Rays lost 5-3. to three. The Angels scored three in the top of the first on a Otani home run. We already talked about that. In an opener situation, you take that pitcher out, you go with the bullpen for the rest of the game, and you hope that the different arm angles and the different pitch styles and the different lefty versus righty is going to get to the hitters, you can get through the rest of that game without giving up another run. And you hope that, since it's the top of the first, you still have nine innings for your offense to to put three across. Mm-hmm. In this case, Ryan Yarborough was starting, and they stuck with him for the rest of his start until he went six. He happened to give up two more runs in the fifth. The Rays then scored three in the bottom of that inning. So my question to you, Tim, and we can go back and forth about this, is should Kevin Cash have taken out his starter after giving up three or maybe had him go another inning or so and take him out in the opener idea when Yarbrough is, is, is a starter. He's a starter. And go with their bullpen because 
yes, their starter ERA is really good, but their bullpen ERA is just as good, if not better. And they've been kind of cold of late, but you can also put the blame on, on their offense for not putting up the runs and putting the bullpen in pressure-filled situations. So if you take Yarborough out and imagine that the bullpen for the next eight or seven innings doesn't give up a run, they then would have tied it up in the fifth. And it's a whole different ballgame from there on out. So what are your thoughts on the opener, Tim? Well, look, and I'm prepared to talk about this as long as we want. And we'll, we'll talk about it more, you know, at a different time to talk about the, the strategy of it overall. For this instance, I think you have to go with, you have to, you have to look at what the team's doing recently. So they started out this year using openers, and Ryan Yarbrough started the year pretty much in AAA. But you have these, you start the year with three starting pitchers. Blake Snell, Charlie Morton, and Tyler Glasnow, one, two, three. And then you have two other spots. Sure. So those other two spots are usually used by openers to set the table for bulk guys. So they aren't starters, they are bulk guys. Like a, like a long middle reliever. Exactly. It's They're glorified long relievers because they're the opposite of glorified starters. Yeah. And so personally, I, and maybe you can argue if you really want that I'm, this is fan bias here, if we you know pull the curtain back, you know where I stand in terms of my allegiances. It's obvious even on just this episode. I don't mind it. Okay. I like the idea if you think that that is what you need to get a younger, less experienced starter some help. The point, ostensibly, of the opener is to change who the starting pitcher faces. So your opener is going to go through the top of the order, and if they're good, they'll go through the, the middle of the order in the second inning. So that means your starter, quote-unquote your starter, comes in either in the third or in the middle of the second and starts off facing the six-hole hitter or the seven-hole hitter. And that means huh. when you go through three times through the order, you're not facing the number one hitter three times. If everything works perfectly and Ryan Stanek comes in and pitches two perfect innings, gets one, two, three, four, five, six through the first two innings, and then you bring in Ryan Yarbrough to start the third, he faces the seven-hole hitter three times. Yeah, I never thought about not it that Not the one-hole hitter. That is, in theory, the point. So you'd be facing, you know, for the Angels, Wilfredo Tovar three times through out of the seven-hole rather than Tommy Lestella. Sure. So that's – and oh, Mike Trout, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so – the Stella is good too, though. He's been having a good year. He was the leadoff hitter yesterday. That was the only right, reason I right, said right. it. So that's the quote unquote the point is that's why the opener exists. And we can talk about this more later. Ryan Stanek has been excellent this year as the opener. His numbers overall are very good. And, you know, it's tough to parse this out because he doesn't always open. So it's tough to, you know, parse it out from us as an outsider if you're in the, yeah. you know, in the Rays broadcast or whatever, you get this pretty easily. His numbers as a starter, quote-unquote, as the opener, are really good. His yeah. last two of his last five aside, he barely ever gives up runs. So he almost always gets you five outs or six outs, and then you throw in Jalen Beeks. Does anybody even know who Jalen Beeks is? Not really. That was who they got in the Nathan Uvalde trade. I'm still, you know, scratching my head over that. But if Stanek <laughs> gives you five outs... And doesn't if you know even if he gives up a couple of hits, if he doesn't give you any runs, that's fine. Yeah. That's what you want out of your seventh yeah. inning, right? If you just need a couple of outs from a guy right. that throws ninety nine, so he gives he gives you five outs. Then Jalen Beeks comes in, gives you four and a third. So now you're through six, and then you can go to your six, seven, and eight, now nine you've got guys. Pagan Castillo and Alvarado to exactly. go seven, eight, nine in a perfect world. And so relievers, their job is to pitch a perfect inning. Right. Whereas a starting pitcher, if Blake Snell is going to pitch the first seven, you're not going to be upset at him if he gives up five hits and two runs. That's a great day. It is a great day. You're ex you're expected as a starting pitcher to have a quality start. I feel like that's a fair assumption of of, of what they're they're expected to do. Sure. So by, you know, you really opened my eyes to something I hadn't thought about just now by putting in the opener to pitch against the first five or six guys in the order. Their job is to get every single one out. If you have Blake Snell start and he gives up a double to Trout and there's one run on the board because Otani drives him in, that's okay. They're still going to have him pitch another six innings or whatever the case may be. Ideally. In this case, Stanek, if he gives up a run, it's a fail as an opener. That is. But what usually ends up happening is he'll pitch two perfect innings. 
And I think that this is a case-to-case basis from team to team. But with the Rays, they're currently second in all of baseball as a reliever with a 3.36 ERA. What doesn't exactly help my argument here is that as a starter, they have a 2.98 ERA. Pretty ridiculous. So in that sense, have starters pitch every game because their ERA as a starter is better. But to me, and we can dive in with just Tampa here, Morton, Snell, and now Glasnow can't, but let's envision that he never got hurt. That's a perfect 1-2-3 for them. It's a very good 1-2-3. Yeah. Then the next two games, you can experiment because let's look at this this one game. Like I said, the Angels score two in the fifth. That's the third time around of the order. Right. Albert Pujols hit the two-run home run. Side note, Albert Pujols now has 200 home runs with multiple different teams. Only six people have ever done that in Major League history. That's the other notable. That's from the this, other notable thing this from this game, game that this we were going to get to between but, the Angels and the Rays. Not, you know, right. not exactly, you know, the the Cubs and the Dodgers, which was happening. And so, Pools is the epitome of a veteran hitter. Sure. In the third time around of the order, a veteran hitter is going to be more likely to get a hit off of any, you know, run of the mill starter. Sure. That's what Yarbrough is at this point. He's right. This, this is his second really year in the big. So if it's if it's a former Cy Young Award winner like Blake Snell, sure you're feeling confident heading into the third Definitely. third round of you of have to bat. trust those kinds of starters. That's their point. But if you're the manager and your fourth or fifth starter in your rotation is heading into that third round through the order, that's when you start to pace in the dugout and start to call the bullpen because any good hitter is going to start to know what's coming. You can notice trends. The best pitchers are the ones that are able to mix in different pitches and be versatile throughout the entire outing. That's what makes them a one, two, or three. Yeah. So the tail end of the rotation guys are still, don't get me wrong, they're amazing pitchers. They're pitching in the major leagues. Sure. But marginally, they're going to be hit more than, than the, the one in the rotation. Re- relatively, so, they're worse than the one pitcher. That's, so here that's you go. Fair to say. If, if you take... Yarborough out of this equation and an opener gave up the three runs in the first. Then the next two innings, two innings, two innings, one, 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 or whatever the layout ends up being, it's different pitchers. And they have a really deep bullpen. Like I said, top two in ERA. If you have different angles, like I said earlier, different speeds, different types of pitchers, maybe Pujols doesn't hit that home run. Because he's all of a sudden facing a, a, a flamethrowing lefty when that last at-bat he was throwing a, a junk ball righty. That's at least the the analytical plan. Sure. Right? You change it, you, you have to change who he's facing so yeah. he doesn't get... You throw him off balance. That's and the point. you can have a righty come in to face Trout. You can have a lefty come in to face Otani. But you can't do that in the fourth inning if you have your starter going. Because right. you don't want to take them out and then, you know... You're in a, a, a limbo between the opener and a starter because you want your starter to go six. I know that's different these days where the, in in 10 years, it's going to be no starters. That's that's my take. It, probably because bullpen arms are so effective nowadays. You can just have a fifth inning, a sixth inning, a seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guy. Air quotes around guy because right. you look at closers, they're a ninth inning guy. Right. And the best setup men know how to pitch in the seventh and eighth. But that's what fascinates me with the Rays. I think that it's a tough situation now that Glasnow's out for indefinitely. But in games where Snell and Morton, Morton has not lost yet. Correct. And Snell is a former Cy Young Award winner. I trust them to, to do whatever they, they're going to do. And if they have a bad start, they'll be better the next time. But no offense to Ryan Yarborough or whoever else the, the Rays are using as, as starters. I think that the opener is is really effective for them and something they can utilize moving forward because they're going to have to play in September some really important series if they want to make the postseason. And this could be so effective in the postseason. We haven't really seen this in the playoffs, but you get to a wild card game. Wild card opener in the wild card, man. I'm here for it. Maybe they won't do that because they'll have Snell and you'll give the the ball to your best pitcher. But in a playoff series where help me more, Third, fourth, fifth game of the series. You've seen these starters before. You can prep for it. But if you go into a playoff game and you don't know who you're facing, 
And as soon as you see them in the first, the guy who's hitting eighth in the order starts prepping for that. And all of a sudden, it's a new guy by the time he's up. You have to you have to get lucky at that point. Sure. You have to just be a hitter and hit the ball. That's the other thing game plan-wise is that Kevin Cash, and people find this annoying, and I can't blame them necessarily because you always like to know who's starting the next game. So the Rays know that. You know, for Friday night, Blake Snell is going to start. More importantly, the Angels know that, right? So you can game plan that. Unless he gets hurt in the next four hours and he doesn't start, you know that that's going to be the game plan. When there's not one of those starting pitchers designated, Kevin Cash never says who, okay, rarely ever says who is going to be the bulk guy. You can speculate, and if it's been five days, you know, four days from now, probably going to be Yarbrough again, but you don't know that for sure. Right. So when it comes to the next time, it could be Yanni Chirinos, it could be Jalen Beeks, it could be Ryan Yarbrough. You don't know for sure. So Kevin Cash will say, yeah, Hunter Wood will open. So you know that Wood is going to go out and throw the first inning, hopefully two maybe if all goes well. After that, you don't know for sure. So like you said, now you've got the mixture of either having there's – a, there's a line between a bullpen day and an opener day. So yeah. I think what you're saying where there's no starters – I think it's a it's going to be kind of what you see in the All Star game, what you see in a bullpen yeah, day. Except yeah. actually, everybody's a good pitcher. That's a great comp. It's actually. instead of it being a bullpen day where you just have to throw a couple of guys out there and hope they can get you four outs. Right. Everybody's actually a good pitcher, and you go two innings, two innings, two innings, one, two, three, and you're through nine. If right. that's how your entire staff looks, I agree that that is conceivable. And the Rays could maybe do that if they really wanted. Obviously, they have some starters, and they don't really want to run Adam Kalerick out there for two full innings. He's a lefty get-out type of guy. But uh, anyway, they have that potential if they really wanted to. The last thing here from my end is that the reason that I think Ryan Yarbrough got this straight-up start and why Yanni Chirinos got the straight-up start his last time out is you reward them for good performance. Jalen Beeks has not been good enough. He's done well in this role as a bulk guy. He can get them four innings maybe. I still don't trust him too much personally. But Chirinos and Yarbrough have shown enough that they... Now, Yanni Chirinos was perfect through five over the weekend and pitched into the eighth. Wow. Yarbrough's previous straight start, he pitched into the eighth against Cleveland. Yeah, I don't want to make it seem like Yarbrough is a, is a bad pitcher. No, no, you're not saying that. I mean, look, he's not the number one, obviously. Right. And this is, a, this is a guy that I've gotten to see a couple of times, so I'm biased towards him in that way. Uh, but yeah, look, he's not, he's not a great MLB pitcher at this point. He had an amazing start his last time prior to this one. But he's but not you, a great pitcher. You, you roll with the hot hand. And if you look at the Rays' probables as we speak right now, Snell is set to go on Friday, 98 strikeouts. Not the best record, but a 3-5 ERA and potential to do even better. On Saturday, Morton, 8-0, a 2-10 ERA, also 98 strikeouts. So the Angels know exactly what they're getting on those two days. Right. Then the next day on Sunday, the Angels have Griffin Canning as their probable starter for the Rays, it's TBD, and they won't know a lick of information about it until post-game on Saturday when, I mean, who knows, but when, when writers go into the locker room and they say, by the way, coach, who's who's starting the next day? He'll be like, Hunter I'm Wood not is, sure yet. Hunter Woods or, opening. And he can say anything he wants. And that's just an effective way to play with the mind of the opponent. And I really, really hope that the Rays do well this year just so we can see this in the playoffs because it's going to be so fascinating. When when ESPN and MLB they're they're talking about who's starting the next day, and it's gonna be you know what's a hypothetical series the Rays against the Astros, Astros right? Oh Verlander and and Garrett Cole and uh, Wade Miley sure let's say those are those three. Then after Snell and Morton, who's pitching against Miley? You don't know. No, and that's so cool that you're trying to figure out what the Rays are gonna end up doing with their scheme. And it's going to pay big dividends on the field if they can keep it secret for long enough. The last thing is they always throw up, you know, the probable opener. So they'll put in Ryan Stanek's, you know, headshot there if they're, you know, saying here's right. the next three games or whatever. And people are like, well, he's only thrown, you know, make it up 50 innings this year. It's just, well, it's because he's not a starter. And people just don't know that. Like, this guy's bad. He's only thrown 50 <laughs> innings. What kind of starter is that? He's not. And that's the point. So many interesting things over the course of baseball in the last couple of days even see who the next person to hit for the cycle is. We'll see if the opener strategy works for the Rays and for the rest of Major League Baseball. If you've got any other topics you want us to talk about, feel free to tell us on Twitter. Send us an email. 
whatever you want. You can listen to this podcast anywhere you like to listen, on Anchor, on Spotify. We're continuing to try to branch out into other platforms. We hope to hear from you. Anytime you want to chat with us, please feel free to do so. We are always happy to chat. That's going to do it for this episode of Good Hacks. For Max, I've been Tim. We'll see you next time. So long.